Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I started my business, Bia, to help women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Cassandra Thurswell, to our show today. Cassandra is the founder of Kitsch, a global brand that creates eco-friendly hair care and beauty accessories for women. Cassandra came from a small town in Wisconsin to Los Angeles with the hopes of creating something meaningful in her life. But before launching her own business, she did whatever it took to make ends meet, from working at a cupcake shop, crafting jewelry, babysitting, whatever job she could get her hands on. She credits her wide range of experiences in helping her build up the grit and resilience she needed to eventually launch her own brand. After seven failed attempts at various businesses, the idea for Kitsch was finally born. She started by hand-making her first product, which was a basic but innovative knotted hair tie in her tiny LA apartment. She was making cold calls, doing door-to-door sales, and whatever she could to get the brand out there without any outside funding. Fast forward to today, the company has evolved into a multi-million dollar brand that's sold in over 27 countries and across 20,000 retail locations worldwide. You can find them at retailers like Ulta, Sephora, Whole Foods, and Urban Outfitters. Kitsch was also featured as one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine. In this week's episode, Cassandra walks us through how following her gut over the years has truly been the key to her success. From couch surfing to save money for her business to working different jobs to learn the industry, she always listened to her strong intuition, which has led her to create the business of her dreams. She also talks about how every single job she's had in the past, and she's had a lot, has helped her become a stronger business person and was the mini MBA she needed. She also dives into the challenges of the early days of fulfilling orders in her one bedroom apartment and the creative tactics she used to get into retailers without a single connection. We talk about the biggest learning she's had over 14 years of running Kitsch and the power of micro intentions and micro habits when creating your dream life and so much more. Welcome to the show, Cassandra. Before you joined us, I was thinking, when was the first time we met? And I remember it was a few years ago at a dinner. And before I knew who you were, what your business was, I was like, this woman is so special and energetically, I think we exchanged like four words, not even a lot, but there was something that really stood out about you. And now that I know you as a person and as a friend, I'm like, you are this incredible woman. And I know I've been wanting you to come on the podcast for years. So this is exciting for me. I have a million questions and I can't wait for just so many women to understand all the impact you're making and learn so much about you. So long-winded way of saying thank you for being here. I'm super, super excited. Thank you for having me. And um, I don't know, I just feel, I don't, it's so weird, the idea of being on a podcast. Like for me, like having all this attention, it seems a little overwhelming. Um, It's a little out of my comfort zone. And thank you very much for the kind words. I actually wanted to say, I feel so similarly to you. Hearing, being a fan of your podcast and listening to all of these incredible women who you have on here, so successful, have done so many incredible things. There is this little part of me in the back of my mind that thinks like, 
well, what more could I offer? Like they've all said all the things like they, you know, like they all got it right. They said they've done all this stuff already. So anyway, I hope I can bring something. (laughs) And thank you for being, and this is why I love you so much for you being so vulnerable and authentic, because I think a lot of women who listen in, they're like, they look at you, they're like, Cassandra's made it. She's built this successful business. She's thriving. And you still have moments of how can I add value? Like a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I want to call that out because everyone has that. And it's just you still showing up and doing the interview, despite you might think that, you know, what else am I going to add? She's had all this other women. So appreciate your vulnerability with that. And what I love so much about you, and I think is so unique from every woman that I've had on the podcast is really your own personal journey. And let's just like jump into it right there. Cause I feel like I already, as even as a friend have millions of questions, But before we go into it, you know, I know you as a person and I know how big, you know, manifestation has played in your life and career for a very, very long time. So I love to start with a big picture question of what are your beliefs around manifestation and what do you think its role is when it comes to creating success in your life? Well, first, I want to say that um, I am a big believer in manifestation, but I think that manifestation is actually really intimidating. I think this, the word and the concept of it, there can actually be a lot of shame that's induced with this idea of like, Hey, it's like a mother saying to a child, like you can be whatever you want in life. Mm. And that puts a lot of pressure on somebody because if you don't become like you know, a billionaire or the most famous actress. Well, my mom told me I could be whatever I want in life. Like, what if I want to be, you know, um, you know, an artist or what if I want, you know, like, and I just, you know, something, something really um, beautiful. That's like really authentic to you, but maybe isn't recognized by a lot of people. And so, you know, I think manifestation, just that word has a lot of um, intimidation behind it. So I'm going to try and maybe express how I look at it. And um, I think, you know, sometimes when people think like, oh, I'm manifestation, I want, I want a million dollars or I want a new car or they think these big things. But for me, I think it, it's more about setting micro intentions and maybe thinking about it that way that has helped me in my journey and um, career and personal. And, uh, and I really approach it in a way of like, I woke up today, I hope I have a great cup of coffee or I'm, I'm setting an intention to um, have a great workout today. And when I leave, I want to feel energized and satisfied. And, um, and it's almost like if we could take these little segments of our day and put our attention on those smaller moments, and then we have success with them, then maybe you could start doing a week like, okay, this week, I hope to set, you know, and, 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 and it makes this idea of uh, manifestation, not so intimidating or shame inducing that I'm not doing like the most incredible, amazing things. Um, And it's also, it feels really good to just sit and set an intention. Like even for this podcast today said, well, what's my intention here? What, what do I hope to accomplish? And, and all of those fears of, of being like, well, what do I have to offer? What, you know, like, okay, I've got to stop that, you know, like, well, what could I do? 
I can remind myself that it takes people sometimes seven times to hear something to really stick. Okay, well, maybe I can be the seventh time where something is, you know, something is said and finally somebody hears it. Or, you know, maybe my intention for this could be as simple as reminding someone to have gratitude of their past or satisfaction for their present or hope for the future, you know, little things like that. And I think that that's how I manifest um, versus, uh, and I should say intention setting or living deliberately. Oh, I love this, Cassandra. (laughs) I actually have not heard anybody talk about manifestation in that way of like micro intentions. And I love, love, love what you said, living deliberately. And I think you are a great example of that. And that's something that I'm still working through. Like, how do I set my day intentionally? Because the first two and a half years of my business, I've just been in go mode. You know, it hasn't been healthy, I will say, but it's gotten us to where we are. And now I'm like, okay, for me to be in this long game, I want to be happy in my life. I want to be happy in my business. So how do like exactly what you said, how do I live intentionally so I can radiate with excitement and not burn myself out because this is a long game, which is, you know, I look at you and you've been doing kitsch for, gosh, has it been over 13 years? Yeah. I'm on my 14th year of doing Oh this. my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, ladies, if you're listening, Cassandra knows what's up and I know the behind the scenes, but I do think you do live life intentionally and deliberately, which I think is great for um, anyone just to kind of be a little bit more thoughtful about that. So I love that. So before we go into Kitsch, I actually want to talk about the early days. What do I have to understand about your childhood to really understand the woman that's sitting in front of me today? Well, I would like to think that I had the best childhood. And was it the perfect childhood? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) But for me, it was the perfect childhood. And um, so I was born um, in Florida in Boca Raton. Um, I'm Colombian. My whole paternal side of my family lives in Colombia. Um, But my parents got a divorce when um, I was 18 months old. And so my mom um, moved back to live with her sister in Minnesota. And the reason why I go all the way back to birth is because, you know, I, I think by having a first generation parent and knowing that's part of who I am, uh, like, blood relative. And then, but then growing up, you know, with a very American mother, it's, um, it's something I've, I've always interested. Oh, I'm Colombian. I'm like so proud of that. And, um, but you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, <laughs> so you know, that's, it's a part of who I am and I'm really proud of that. But, but the Wisconsin part is very interesting because Growing up, my mom moved in with her sister, and um, that was a, the first six years of my life, essentially, was um, my mom being a single mom of three. And um, we had such a strong bond, my mom and my two sisters and I. We were such a unit. And she got remarried when I was in first grade, and we moved to a very small town in Wisconsin. It was 2,000 people. And it was the most simple life. We caught frogs in the lake behind our house. We rode our bikes in the country roads, and my friends were the most amazing real friends that I could have ever asked for. And there wasn't a lot of materialism and there weren't a lot of there actually weren't a lot of choices and i think that that 
was really interesting for me to grow up in that type of environment. And, um, and I'm actually really, really grateful for it. I think a lot of people when they're young and they want to do like, you know, go to a big city or they do all this stuff, they think like, Oh, I got to get out of here. And, um, and I was really, really grateful for that simple upbringing. I love that. And one thing you mentioned right before you're going to your childhood, you're like, listen, we, we had ups and downs, but it was perfect for me. Mm-hmm. And I look at you and you're someone that always looks at the glass half full and you're not, you don't seem like a complainer. And I want to talk about, you know, your, I believe it was high school and college. You really got into Wayne Dyer. So where did that come from? Like, where did this interest in personal growth? Cause I look at you and I'm like, man, like you are so evolved and you can tell you've been doing the work for a long time. So where did that come from? This optimism for life and like need to just grow as a person so early in your life. Um, thank you for those kind words. I'm definitely a work in progress. So I have such a thirst for self-improvement and I never want to assume that I know it all or anything, but I really remember in middle school, I had a gym teacher. I'm not very athletic, but I had a gym teacher and I remember him saying professional basketball players will close their eyes and visualize making free throws. And I remember that so like it was yesterday and and just being so amazed by this idea of mindset and how you can exercise by closing your eyes and how their ability to score more was increased by visualizing themselves making successful free throws. And I think that that was where I had this big pivot, like, oh my gosh, my mind is so powerful. I may not be the most academic, but Mm. I could, and that's, I guess, where, and I didn't have the, you know, the vocabulary for it at the time where I really started to do intention setting and, um, you know, like, oh, I want to be the captain of my soccer team. I was not very good at soccer, but like, visualizing myself, you know, being a great cheerleader for the team and a good leader and a role model, like that's what got me to be the captain of the soccer team, you know, and um, it's just simple things like that. Um, It just really resonated with me when I was young, this idea, like Mm -hmm. maybe I wasn't, you know, uh, great at something, but one thing I could do was control my thoughts. I I actually really remember um, this quote that I heard and it was like, we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about the food that we eat. We spend a lot of time and energy thinking about the clothes that we wear and what we're going to do for the day. But we don't spend enough time and energy thinking about the thoughts that we want to think. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, whoa, like, you're right. I do spend a lot of time thinking about the clothes that I want to wear. You know, like, I remember thinking those things. I was like, what if I spent that same amount of time thinking about the thoughts that I want to be thinking and start telling myself different stories, whether they're real or not. So yeah, I loved, I love, um, I loved it from a very early age and I did the Esther and Jerry Hicks and Wayne Dyer. And I mean, uh, I mean, lots and lots of, um, you know, emotional freedom technique and all these things, even just from uh, when I was in college. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. 
I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to today's episode. I love that. And I love that you said auditing like what we want to think, because I think also sometimes we can have awareness of, oh gosh, like I'm being, I'm having a difficult thought. I'm being self-critical on myself, but how do we replace that with a positive thought? Right. And like, and I just loved when you said like what we want to think and like putting in the right thoughts in our brains. Cause at least for me, I know I'm mindful of being difficult on myself, but am I really taking the time to replenish my brain with positive thoughts? I think I can do a better job there. So that just really resonated with me. And I love that it's been a part of your ethos for so, so long. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit so we can get into a bit of your story, but you know, I know you ended up moving to LA and you didn't have any connections. You didn't have your family supporting you. Like you were hustling here to make ends meet. And in another interview, you mentioned that when you talk about this time period in your life, people kind of cringe about it. Tell me more about why you said that and what was really going on at that time period in your life. Yeah, I, it's funny. It is a little, some, some things I think can be a little cringy. Um, you know, I think number one, door-to-door sales seems to be pretty cringy to people. This idea of, you know, driving around the city and lugging a suitcase and walking in and getting rejected, you know, like that is very ego crushing. Um, That whole concept is pretty cringy. Also, you know, high schoolers, um, I was working at a cupcake shop and these high schoolers would come in and this like very, wealthy neighborhood and I, and they I'd, I'd hear them talking about prom and I'd be like, hey, I'll do your makeup for you. And I was just always kind of like trying to make a dollar babysitting. Um, I didn't have an apartment for six months. And so I had my whole life in my car. That I think um, was an interesting time of my life. Thankfully, I had a lot of friends that would let me sleep on their couch. I have a sister that lived here and she, even though it was like an hour away uh, from my job, I definitely like, you know, utilized that resource as much as I could. During that time, it was actually really funny, like even just like dating and not having a place for someone to pick you up. Um, You know, I, I remember I went on a date and this guy was like, I'd love to send you some flowers. And I'm like, oh God, where do I... Where do I have this from? So I was working at a cupcake shop at the time and I was like, oh, you can send it to my work. And I remember him kind of thinking that was strange. You know, he didn't know that I didn't have an apartment at the time. And um, and and I remember him like being like, oh, the flowers are still here at at your at the cupcake shop. And I just remember being like, yeah, I really like them. 
<laughs> I enjoy them more at work since I spend so much time here. But, but you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's just, but I was never down and out. And, you know, you said yeah. this before, like, I never had this idea of like, poor me, everything, you know, I'm, I'm such a victim or anything. I had some of the best memories during that time. I thought that like nothing happens to me. It happens for me. And it was just, you know, it was a really actually fun part of my life. I love that. Nothing happens to me. It happens for me. And I know at that time, like you were working a lot, like you were working in a, that cupcake shop, you were doing makeup, like a bunch of things on the side. So there, you know, I'm sure you weren't sleeping quite a bit, but how did you have such a positive mentality around all that? Because a lot of people would be like, this is stressful. I'm, I'm living in different people's homes on my friends. I'm living out of my car. Like, how did you have a more positive aspect and not victimize yourself during that time? Because I think that's a really core quality in even running your business today. I mean, that's a great question. I, I had a car. And I had a job. Yeah. I had a lot to be grateful for. I have been very fortunate. I lived in Thailand for a while. I know what it what real poverty looks like. Mm. I, and it's really hard to not appreciate having a job, having a, a mode of transportation. Even if I didn't have a car, I, have, I would have no problem taking the bus, asking, you know, but they didn't even have Ubers back then. But you know, there was there was a time when I didn't have a car and I rode my bike everywhere in in Los Angeles, which is terrifying, by the way. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, Please no but, that. But you know, it's, I think it's just a perspective. You know, I think you know somebody could be like, my my compu- my computer isn't new. I don't. You know, I'm so sad about it, or I'm just grateful I have computer. You know, who's really good at that mindset is Byron Katie. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. I love her work. And she has this great example that I think about all the time of like a mother getting really frustrated by having to pick up her child, her children's socks. And every day she's like, oh, like what? Oh, no, it was actually her story of saying like, you know, at first thought, like, I wish my kids would respect me more and pick up their own socks. Like I have to do this. And she changed her mindset of being, I'm so grateful I have kids that I get to pick up socks for. And like hearing somebody else be able to have just those little like segments of their day, the little perspective Mm -hmm. shifts, I think um, helped me do that too. Other people's stories. Yeah, I love that. And I was going to say, yeah, perspective is key in gratitude. And I would say gratitude is something that I hear all, all the time. And I know even like this pat, I don't even know what day it was. Was it Monday? I know I texted you guys. We have a group chat where I was like actively involved in our manufacturing because, you know, we were missing one person and I was in it. And by the end of the day, and I had all these plans for my day, I had a bunch of meetings, you know, your day is completely shifted. And, you know, and I, I, I definitely caught myself having like a victim personality for a second, like, gosh, like my day is shifted. And then I remember thinking to myself, how lucky that I get to do this, that I have customers buying our product. So anytime I see myself, because I can easily go into the victim mindset, like I'm very aware of that. I try to quickly shift it to your point. And I sent that video. I was like, you know, laugh guys, like this is fun. This is what I look like. I have seeds all over my body. My husband's like laughing. So it was just nice to kind of look at the positive side of it. So you doing that so early in your life, because starting a business, as we all know, like you cannot have an ego. You jump in. As Carissa said, our friend who's amazing also, like you punch in when you have to. So I just love that because you're epitome of, you know, 
being in the thick of things. And I think your early life before even starting a business really set you up for success because you didn't mind getting your hands dirty. You didn't mind doing every little thing. And I think if you want to be successful, you have to be okay with that. It is not glamorous behind the scenes. You know what? It's it's even more than not glamorous. It can be it can be like I don't know how to I don't know what the word I want to use is because I want to be gentle here, but it I mean it can be humiliating. And and like, you know, like if somebody were to 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 ask you like, oh, what did you do for the day? You'd be like, Well, let me lay it out on the table. And uh, and it, you know, because because you make a lot of mistakes. Like it's not just about punching in and punching out. Sometimes you have to clean up a mistake that you make. And that is like really humbling. Um, yes. and, uh, and yeah, you just got to keep on going. By the way, I loved, I loved that. When, when, when you sent that video of you with seeds all over you, my <laughs> first thought was she's living the dream. She's oh. living the dream. Like this is something so many people dream of is having a brand and getting to, um, you know, really be part of it. You know, you're, you're, you're doing amazing. So. No, I so appreciate that. I literally have goosebumps. And I remember we, I had thrown an event and I, you, you had come to, it was like a poker event maybe last year. And so many women, I just thought this was fascinating. I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the podcast yet, but you know, there's a lot of women, including you who are far along their journey. They've been doing it for many years. And I remember there was three women who pulled me aside and they were like, ask me, how's Bia? How's everything? And you know, in that time, like I'm in the weeds, we're so early in the brand. And they're like, you know what, Yasmin, this is, that's like one of the most fun times, yeah. like really cherish it because as you get bigger, the demands are different. Not that they're not enjoying it, but like, it's a very special moment. And going back to what you said about perspective, because anyone who's listening, it's a lot of women earlier in their entrepreneurship journey. Like it's tough. We're trying to figure out how we stay inspired. You know, you get a lot of rejections. It's just part of the journey. And hearing women tell me like, this is a magical time. And also you, like, it's just a great perspective shift. So hopefully that helps anyone listening um, because it's so, it's so beautiful. But I want to go to, you know, it seems like you moved to LA, you didn't have your own business at the time, but you seem to be very entrepreneurial. I actually did not know this about you until I did prep, but I believe you had like seven other business ideas before Kitsch, but tell me more, like, did you want to start a business and what were those other ideas that you were dabbling with? Um, I actually did have a business when I moved to Los Angeles. Oh. Um, so I, my mom and I had started when I was my early years of college, my mom started a small boutique. So my grandparents were retailers and my, my, uh, my mom and my stepdad had a, an orthodontic practice together and so very entrepreneurial, um, multiple generations. And, um, and my, uh, my mom was like, I want to start a boutique. And so I was so fortunate to be able to go to trade shows with her and help, you know, to do this boutique with her from the very beginning. And so that was like the first business that I was really able to like get some awareness um, of, of how to staff. And um, I was so young during that time. And then, um, and then we started a jewelry business together. And that's when I started doing like door-to-door -door sales and shipping and purchase orders and doing the wholesale side of it. Um, we were um, sourcing uh, semi-precious jewelry from India. And so it was so cool. We were going to India multiple times a year and, oh, um, and going to trade shows there. But then it was like, you know, we had a really, really hard time. I didn't have an MBA. 
I don't, you don't need an MBA to have a business, by the way. The only thing we knew how to do was hustle. That's, that's it. We didn't know strategy. We didn't know. It was like, if you want sales, you got to go out and get them. You need to act. And, um, and so door to door sales was the only way. And so I exhausted all the shops here in, uh, in Wisconsin. And so I would fly out to Los Angeles and I would do flea markets and I've showed at the Rose Bowl and like, so, I mean, I had all of these experiences of action oriented, um, like boots on the ground sales strategy. And then when I moved out here and trying to make ends meet, I started a spray tan business. I started a scarf business with inspirational quotes, all with different businesses. I love that. You know, like I, it, it was just like, I always just kept trying and trying. And then um, finally I, I started, and I think when I started Kitsch, I think I had like another business at the same time. So um, then I just realized, okay, this one's working. I'm going to hyper-focus on this one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I love that. I actually did not know that you had worked with your mom. Like what an incredible experience to see like the realities of business and what you said about you guys didn't know strategy. You just outworked and you hustled to get it. And I think my entire life has been that. I've never been the smartest person in the room. Like I remember I was working in investment banking. The HR guy asked me straight up in the interview, you didn't go to an Ivy League. Why should we hire you? So I love that because you can outwork anyone, right? And it's not about where, where you went to school, if you went to school, if you went to grad school, like at the end of the day, it's all about like life experiences and are you willing to put yourself on the line and hard work and hustle? So it's so cool to see that you've had that so early on and you were still trying to like dabble and, you know, make money in different ways because you had to in LA, like you were trying to make ends meet. So um, I, I love that. So tell me about Kitsch, like what was it? What was the thought process behind it? And how did you know, like, this is it? Like, this is going to be my thing? Um, you know, I think it's, it's, because Kitsch is going on its 14th year, in hindsight, I'm able to say, because sometimes you meet with a founder and they've got this like perfectly choreographed origin story. And I can say, number one, I do not have that. I, Kitsch was all about organic growth. It was, wow. I made a product that I could hand make one by one, go out there, do what I knew, which was door-to-door -door sales and slowly build business that way by single order by single order. But I think what differentiated me than maybe some others, I don't know, was I was really listening. I mean, we had so many reorders off the bat and I bootstrapped Kitsch. So I, every time I'd make, it, make an order, sell it, go reinvest and I kept doing that. But the difference, I think, that I I was listening to the customer and the customer was saying like, wow, these are so much better for my hair. And it was these little comments that I was like, okay, interesting, a hair accessory that's better for your hair. What if I could create essentially a lifestyle brand about hair care that's not shampoo and conditioner all the times of your day that you, you know, touch your hair or you're interacting with your hair when you sleep, when you wash your face. And what if I curated a collection of accessories that supported a healthy hair care routine? And I didn't really come up with that idea. The customers told me that and I followed her. She was like, what else can you make? And so, you know, 
I would love to say like it was very much a business plan with a specific growth trajectory of, you know, three to five year. There's none of that. It was like, okay, let, let me listen to what you're wanting and needing, or let me see what your routine looks like and how can I improve that? And it was just a very slow build. And I, the other thing too is, I didn't even know I could get an investor. I didn't even know that this was even an option for me. I was just there making products, doing what I loved every day. And that's, um, I think, how I was able to bootstrap the business. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love this. And what I think is so amazing is that you mentioning you just really followed the customer and were putting in the work every day of what you love, because sometimes I will meet with different entrepreneurs. And, you know, this is something that I think a lot about, actually, they have the whole year planned. And I think that works for some people. And I have these high level goals, but similar to you, I feel like I'm more so just showing up every day, trying to do the best I can, give incredible customer service. And sometimes I kind of get hard on myself of like, okay, I don't have those specific goals and details. I have ideas, but it's like the business is kind of guiding me towards it. And so far it's worked well for us. And I am just sharing that because I know before I started Bia and I started my own business, I always felt like we had to have it all figured out. And so hearing stories like yours makes it more approachable to start something because you don't have that intense pressure on yourself and you don't know how the business will flourish when you just show up every day. And like you, like you said, like listen to the customers and just iterate. And that's so amazing that you were, you know, creating these, your first product were the hair ties from your home. So tell me more about, you know, you mentioned you bootstrapped it. Like what did that actually look like? Right. Were you working another job to kind of finance that? Like, did you have an apartment at the time? Were you still living out of your car? Like what did your finances look like when you were working on this business? Yeah. So I saved up $30,000 before um, I actually quit my job and started this. Um, I did have other jobs on the side, but they were complementary to what I was doing. And so um, one of the jobs was I was doing private label jewelry manufacturing. And so I would make one piece of jewelry and I'd show it to a buyer and I'd say, do you want to put your logo, your brand on this piece of jewelry? Because most of my experience was in jewelry for my business with my mom and a previous company that I'd worked for. And um, a lot of that was able to be filtered into Kitsch. But I made a lot of relationships that way. Not a lot of sales happened that way, but I met buyers and I read vendor manuals and I understood how to sell and manufacture a product at scale from those opportunities. And so then I took those learnings and I started to build the foundation of Kitsch through through um, that private label jewelry manufacturing experience. Um, I was extremely responsible and everybody always talks about like, oh, I want to be an overnight success. I am so grateful I wasn't because I was so able, I would make a product and then somebody would be like, oh, the size is too small. And I'd be like, okay. And I'd go back and I'd make it a little bit bigger. And I was the little orders every day and the feedback every day I was able to modify. I've changed my logo four times, I think. I mean, it was like, I have, I don't even have like a branding guide at this point because well, <laughs> we're working on one right now, finally, but it's, it's one of those things. Like, I just don't think we have to have it all figured out because sometimes you're working through it with the customer and she's helping you and guiding you. You know, it can happen organically and slowly. And 
And it actually feels a lot more authentic. You know, I can say this 14 years later, I know exactly how you feel right now that you feel like you have to have it figured out. But I, you know, Tony Robbins talks about how people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in five. And so let's drop the year thing. It's intimidating, you know, let's start taking smaller steps and and having a little more satisfaction in, um, in, in making the best product you possibly can today. Ugh, I want to just take your story. I, I'm just so excited about this because I'm very passionate about putting stories like yours out there in terms of, you know, self-funded, it's slow and steady, you know, you're, you're, th- you're working in like decades. I love, for example, like your story, Mary Ruth, Carissa Bodner, like these are all women who are similar to you. And I'm, I'm not knocking on everyone else on my podcast. They're all special in their own ways. Absolutely. But like, I love the, the slow and steady and the organic growth because it's just, it really resonates with me and how I want to build. So I just, this gets me so excited and I get lit up hearing stories like yours because I think it's very approachable in how to build something. And it was interesting. I was actually talking to my mom before this podcast and she's so sweet. She listens to my episodes and her question, which is so funny. I'm like, I wonder if I got this from her. She's always like, but Yasmin, like you need to dig it. Like ask them, how did they like get their first few orders? Like get into the weeds. And you know, I'm like, mom, I don't have three hours, but like, that's a good question. And I think I'm like, you're going to love this episode with Cassandra because you are just showing like you would just sell it initially door to door trade shows and just take it one step at a time. And the success comes over years. We see your story now, but it's like 14 years of you building this. So I think that's just really special. But going to my mom's question, I know you got into a lot of retailers, right? And a lot of people might be like, okay, maybe she knew someone that she got into like these larger retailers, but you had no one. So tell me more about how you created these opportunities for you. Because on paper, people might think, oh, Cassandra got it all figured out. Like her business just blew up so quickly. But give us the real behind the scenes of that. When I first started making the hair elastics, um, I didn't have any marketing dollars behind my brand. And I had experience doing private label. And I think one of the things that I did was I, I was making a product that people wanted and everybody just wanted it private label. And so that it was a little heartbreaking because I knew that that wasn't going to give me, you know, brand recognition or help me build what I was trying to build. But because I was bootstrapped, I was like, okay, if I agree to this one order, you know, that's X amount of dollars in my bank account that I can invest and, you know, from one retailer. So let me take a step back. In order to get in front of specific buyers, I thought about like, okay, they're not going to probably answer from my cold calls or emails, which I did. That's actually how I got into Ulta. Um, but, but I said, okay, well, how, how can I position myself? And so with the trade shows, I found a showroom that sold brands that I knew were already in the retailers I wanted to be in. So I went to that showroom and I said, hey, I can't afford to be here. But what I can do is I can work for you for free. I will go and I'll stand in your booth and I will travel and I will do, I'll pay my own travel. I'll do all of this stuff. As long as you give me the tiniest little corner, I will sell everybody else's brand as if it were my own, but give me this little corner. And, you know, at the end, if I can show the buyers my stuff, that would be great. So I just got creative in ways in which I could get in front of those buyers. And it wasn't like, 
major, major buyers until like, uh, you know, at the end of my first year where I actually got like a substantial purchase order, but just those little ones that, um, that, but that really helped to give me the feedback, make it better. And then when the bigger one came along, I already had a refined product. I love that. Such a creative way. And how did you get that, the, your first larger purchase order? So that came through one of those trade shows. There's two opportunities. One, I got it in, in a totally unexpected way. Um, it was Nordstrom Kids. And I was like, I'm trying to be like a cool, <laughs> like 25 something, whatever. I'll take this order. Super grateful for it. Um, I made that whole order out of my apartment. Um, and I had like a LTL, a less than truckload um truck come up to the apartment and I had to load the boxes out. It was like a whole thing. But, but, you know, I think, um, that opportunity came through one of those trade shows and it just wasn't what I was expecting. But I do remember that was a $13,000 order. I remember walking to the bank with my husband, who's my business partner, and we were hand in hand walking our dog and we went to cash that check and we both just cried. We wow. both just cried because it was like, we've made it. And, you know, I think it was like one of those days where it didn't come in any way that I thought it was going to come. You know, I, I want, I had this idea of it. Oh, it's Urban Outfitters or, you know, something like that, that I really wanted to be at. But it was Nordstrom Kids and Nordstrom Kids gave me that first big check to help me pay off my credit card. And I'm really, was really grateful for it. Oh my gosh. And I'm so curious because I know, you know, we started this podcast about you talking about how you were very intentional. And I'm sure as you were building Kitsch, you were very intentional about visualizing and, you know, wanting to get into certain retailers. So did any of those really come to life? Like I act, and the reason why I'm asking is that I had another woman on the podcast and she's a big believer in similar to you, like visualizing. And when I asked her, what are some things that came to life? She couldn't stop giving me examples. And after that, I'm like, all right, I'm doing it. Vision boarding. I know me and you text about it. Like I am all in. So tell me more about maybe like those early days where you kind of wrote down certain intentions and maybe a few that kind of came to life. If you, if you feel like that resonates with your experience. I mean, in I every single retailer that I've ever written down that I wanted to be in, I was in. Not there was not one that I mean, we were even in Barney's, like we did everything. The interesting thing, and I well, how I've gotten more intentional about that um, strategy is just because you put a retailer on your list doesn't mean it's a healthy retailer who's actually going to help you grow as a brand. And I learned that the hard way because I had a retailer on my list, and at the end of the partnership, I actually ended up having to write them a check. And so, you know, I think I've I've changed the way and this is just years of again not manifesting but intentionally thinking about the outcomes rather than, you know, like the sell in rather than this, you know, and now I'm thinking more about the sell through aspect of it, but so rather than saying like, "Oh, I want to be I'll I'll continue to just use Nordstrom. I want to be in Nordstrom." I say I want to be in the retailers that represent me perfectly, where I can profit and have healthy relationships with. 
I want to be the number one brand in a retail. Like, and, and so then I'll just keep like refining that statement so that I know at the end, if that were to manifest or when that manifests, I've, I've cleaned it up. So it's not just like, I want to be in this retailer and then the retailer goes bankrupt. Love that. That's a great, and I love the broadening of it and you knowing kind of like the importance of what you're looking for in a retailer. I'm curious, where does that thought live? Do you write it down? Is it intention you think about daily? I mean, that might be too much, but where does that live? So that's a great question. I do vision boarding and I do that every year. I put it on my screensaver. Um, you know, I, I, I know you're asking specifically about retailers, but I've kind of like gone away from, I'm going to just say in general. And, and again, I feel very intentional about, I feel very insistent about it's the day-to-day smaller acts that we do that help with the bigger picture. I have an alarm that goes off on my phone three times a day. And it reminds me of the person I want to be, how I want to show up in the world, you know, has like characteristic traits and like, you know, what am I trying to do every day? And it starts at eight, two and nine o'clock at night. And so like those alarms are, are reminding me like, okay, we're, we're, we're on a path here. Um, you know, I, I do the vision boarding. And then one of the other things that um, I really love to do is I do future journaling. And this one I do when I'm feeling a little anxious um, where, you know, I even have journal entries of, of years ago of me saying, we got into Ulta and I'm so excited and the customer loves mm. us there and they look for us. And, and I write a journal entry as if it already happened from the future. And I know that's not a revolutionary thing because um, I think a lot of people do that now, which is incredible. Um, but, you know, it's just one thing that I've been doing for years and it just helped me to calm down um, and actually think about what I want the outcome to be rather than what, what we may perceive as the, the first step, you know, not thinking about it all the way through to the end versus just getting in. Future journaling might seem common, but it's actually, I would say not as common as you would think. Like I've heard about it. I still haven't done it, but I can imagine, I love that you said that's something you tap into if you're feeling anxious or fears. And I think sometimes in business, whether it's a conversation or, um, a big meeting. I mean, there's so many things that can impact that. So I could imagine you writing it in a positive way that that kind of makes you feel a little bit like self-assured and calms you. So I will definitely try that. That sounds really powerful. I actually do that. And I think one of the other things that feels really great is doing that for friends. So like one of my friends, she's a director and like sending her an email of being like, you know, dear so-and-so, you did an amazing job. You're going to win an award. And I send her an email as if she got it and like playing with that with your friends too. It's a very like, it feels really good for yourself. And then, you know, like letting your friends know too that like, you know, I'm hoping for this for you as well. And that like altruistic approach Mm -hmm. is, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's very fun. That's powerful. I love it. And do you ever send these emails to yourself? <laughs> yeah. Cause I I'm do. like, all right, I don't yeah. know what friends game. I want an email like today. Like, do I just send it to like, what, what yeah, happened? Yeah. yeah. I send yeah. it to yourself. Oh, congratulations. You just got in. Here's your new, here's your purchase order. And yeah. you know, you can ship it in three months, you know, do it's all about playing a game. You know, we can, we can, oh, I love we can have a lot more fun. 
Yes. Oh, this is amazing. And your the alarm that you mentioned, the 8 a.m., 2 p.m., 9 p.m., is that a specific app or is it like literally just your alarm you set up? It's just the Apple alarm. Like I just, I, yeah. it goes off on my watch if my phone isn't nearby, you know, and it just, it has like, and I change it every so often. I have like four or five, just, you know, almost like my own personal mission statement or like, you know, yeah. my strategic goals for myself or something. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, bullet points. Here's, here's how I want to show up every day. And they're not, um, it's, it's more of like a, an emotion rather than it is um, Ooh, I like, that. I want to be a millionaire or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an emotion of how I want, how I want to feel. Oh my, I'm literally taking a million notes right now. <laughs> I love that. Cause I've tried different apps and that like trigger messaging, but then I'll get the message and it's nice, but it doesn't like deliver that emotion for me specifically. So I love that you just use the Apple alarm. You can make notes in there. I've done that before. So finding something that really resonates with you sounds so simple, but I actually think that's very strong. So I, I love that. And I love, again, like the whole theme of this podcast, I feel like are like micro habits, micro intentions to create the life you want, which I think is so powerful and not talked enough about. But you know, one thing you mentioned also in another podcast is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you consider yourself sometimes like an introvert. And I think that's so interesting because, you know, you talk about, you know, when you were doing door-to-door sales back in the day and then cold calling and emailing. So you mentioned Ulta came from like a cold call and email. So how did you get out of that introvertness and really close that account? Because I don't think you hear stories like that too often. That's such a good question. You are excellent at this, by the way. I think there's a difference between being an introvert and, and maybe what people perceive that as. Um, I don't love like huge social settings. I do love talking about one-on-one what I'm passionate about. And I love talking about my business with somebody who is interested in hearing about my business and, um, talking about me personally, maybe isn't, I mean, every, I mean, I think they say statistically, to most people, there's no sweeter sound than the sound of your own voice. And that's why people love to talk. But like, <laughs> I, I definitely, this is not my comfort zone because I don't ever want to claim that I'm an expert at something because I really genuinely feel like I'm a constant learner of life. But mm-hmm. when it comes to rejection, that's very different. You can be you can be an extrovert and be terrified of rejection and or an introvert, but I'm just not I think door-to-door sales and selling product, I don't think you have to be an extrovert. You have to be a good listener. You need to be resilient and um and you just need to be, you know, persistent. And I don't think um I don't think that has anything to do with, you know, introvert extrovert. Being a good listener, you know, I think is probably the hardest of all of them. And I think listening to the customer was uh, a big key to to Kitch's growth. I love that. And I think you mentioning that you're a good listener. You're also, it seems like from listening to other interviews you've done, like you're very intentional with the relationship. So, you know, whether it's Alta or something else, like I could imagine that is maybe a superpower of yours to be very thoughtful and think about the other person. Because to your point, 
people are always just talking about themselves and what works for the business. But I'd be curious, like, as you're thinking about partnerships, like, is your perspective around how can I add value to, let's say like that Ulta cold call, or it could be another retailer? Like, how do you think about that? I mean, the first step is you need to know what their wants and needs are. Like, and going in and trying to sell them, you know, your product and it has not even aligned with any of their wants and needs, you're going to fail. And so getting a clear understanding of, of what are their intentions of, of, you know, what they want to do, but also taking this perspective of um, having it be a mutual relationship. I always say like, you know, my hope for this partnership is at the end, you get a promotion because Mm -hmm. if you get a promotion by bringing kitchen and we sell well, like we made magic together. So I think um, just thinking it not just about Kitsch getting a purchase order, but like if we do a really good job and that get that person gets a promotion, like we're bonded, you know, like that's, you know, it's so much bigger than just not only that. And then if the customer, so this is how I would think about it. So before I go into a meeting, I'd say, okay, what, what's, what's the companies that company that I'm trying to sell to, what's their goals? Okay. If their goals are, you know, simplifying the category and doing X, Y, and Z, I'm going to make sure I'm going to tell them how Kitsch can do that for them. And then the next step is, is what's your goal as a buyer? And you're like, oh, are you looking to move up the ladder? Like, how can I help you? What, what are your difficulties? Oh, um, you know, people aren't responding to her. Okay. I'm going to make sure every week I send a follow-up email so that she's very clear on like what's happening because I hear that, you know, like people not responding to her and getting her the things she needs on time. So that would be another thing that I would implement for this team, knowing that that's something that she, you know, is expressed as difficult. And then the third part I would be, I would say, okay, I would like in, you know, to, to feel great at the end of the year that we had this incredible partnership to the point where maybe she gets a raise. And then I would take it even step further. And I would say the customer was so happy when she purchased product that now she's devoted to this retailer because she had such a great experience. She's going to come back three more times this year. And so I tell myself these stories, whether or not they're true, I play it all the way through. And I think about all of the people that could be positively impacted by the hair tie that I made. So, um, I know it's so simple because it's just a hair tie, but it's, I don't know. I think about the impact that it could make. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I love how clear, like me even asking you that question, you were so clear about the thoughts that went in your head. I just think that's so interesting to see how you think through it and so powerful. So thank you for even like walking through all that. And I also remember another interview you were talking about, and I just thought this was fascinating that I think it was maybe at one of your warehouses or co-packers, but like you were walking down the aisle and you're like spraying maybe like some type of scent and you were just kind of like visualizing or giving like a, like, I don't want to say a prayer, just like good juju to it. I know that I don't, I don't even know if you remember saying that, but I was just like, that's so nice. Like you were just like giving good thoughts to your product. Like when I was at manufacturing, I was like, this is made with love. And I hope that the person who gets it realizes that like, there's a lot of care behind it. And that just that mentality and that thought came from Mm -hmm. me listening to you saying that in a podcast. So it sounds so simple, but I just, again, think like these micro thoughts are so healthy and just fun for you. Like, like you said, it's kind of like a game. So fun. It feels good too. Like I, and I do do, I did do that. I mean, our, our, we do our own warehousing and fulfillment in, in downtown Los Angeles, but 
when I would, when I was working next to the product, which was not a long time ago, I would, I would walk through the warehouse and I would like put my hand on a box and I would think like, oh my gosh, someone's going to buy this product. And how cool is that, that I get to connect with them. And I would think about how special that, you know, butterfly effect is. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, I would hope, and I just would hope like, oh, I hope they really love this. And I, so yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. I forgot that I used to do that. I love it. I love it so much. So I'm curious, you know, over the past 14 years, I'm sure there's been many, many ups and downs, but would you be open to sharing maybe like one of the most hardest moments you've had and kind of how you've overcome it, whether it was like personally within Kitsch or professionally, but it's always interesting to kind of hear. Yeah, I think um, the hardest time for me was becoming a mother. I think for a long time, I, I had a major identity crisis. I really bring as much as I can to everything that I do. And, you know, when you become a mom, like in, even in business, like you can read all the business books and get pointers and tips and strategy and try it out. Um, and when you become a mother, I think you're working with the little infant who can't verbally tell you what their experience is. And so there is no reciprocation of it being like, Hey, I like that. I don't like that. You have to be so slow and learn from nonverbal cues, how their experiences. And in order to be that slow and present, you have to put everything away. And I wasn't in a place to do that. I wasn't in a place where I could hold space for this little teeny being to, um, you know, tell me their wants and needs, you know, non-verbally in a healthy way, because I was trying to build this business and, you know, make ends meet. And, and it was, really hard. And what I realized, and this goes back to um, my favorite author, Byron Katie talking, you know, as I'm saying this, and she, she, I love this thing where she talks about turning it around. I couldn't hold space for my daughter because I couldn't hold space for myself. I was constantly, and I, I think about this a lot with Kitsch, I was so customer centric and loving that customer so much and being very much a people pleaser that um, when I became a mother, it was like, okay, I need to learn how to set boundaries. I need to learn how to, you know, listen without trying to fix. Because sometimes when it comes to like, you know, a friend or like a baby, it's like, you have to set the boundary and then hear them say, I don't like the boundary that you set (laughs) and still be okay with setting the boundary. And Mm. that was really that was really difficult for me to figure that out. It took me years. I had postpartum anxiety. I was like, I don't understand how I can't be good at this. You know, I read all the books. Like I should, I should have this figured out. I did it with business. Why can't I do this with being a mother? And so that was really, really hard for me. And I think it, and it permeated the business in a sense too, um, where I think it, there was a good three years where, my husband really had to step in, you know, he had to really help out because I just like, and I didn't know to name it at the time that I had postpartum anxiety. 
Um, sure. I was so overwhelmed. I, I didn't, I, I, I wouldn't even recognize myself in that time. And um, again, like I look back at it and I think like, I'm so thankful that I had that experience because if I wouldn't have to try to continue through life without being able to hold healthy boundaries with people to this stage, I am so much happier. I have wow. the most beautifully authentic friendships, relationships with my family, my daughter and I, we have so much respect for each other. Um, I would not have had that if I didn't show up for that anxiety and then accept it and, um, and work with it. And, you know, it was, it was really hard. I have so much empathy for working moms. It is, it's really, it's really a lot. And, um, and we do not, I don't think as a society, I don't think we talk enough about postpartum anxiety enough. It's just really, it's, it's really hard. It's crippling actually. And, um, and, and I think it's really normal. I think it's a really normal thing um, to not have it all worked out and to not feel like yourself and, and to just want to cry every moment of the day. And um, so I would love to, you know, if there's anyone out there that is feeling that even, you know, I know I have an employee that expressed to me that I was like, you want you just talk, keep, keep talking about it, keep talking about it. Um, so just don't think you're alone. So I think that that, that was probably the hardest time for me. No. And I appreciate you opening up and just being so real about that moment. And, you know, you mentioned it took a few years, but what really helped you if someone's going through that, you know, I don't have a kid yet, but like, I'm like, all right, what do I need to start thinking about? And of course, like you said, you read all the books. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I'll personally even learn when I'm in it, but what really helped you during that time? You mentioned boundaries was one thing, but anything else that kind of helped you get over that difficult hump and that anxiety? I think I was really willing to change. And I think that that was probably the reason why I was able to like make it through is I was like, well, why is this bothering me so mm. much? Why is the noise of a cry so hard for me? Well, it's because I don't like crying. You know, like why is, yeah. why is it so hard for me to, to, you know, draw this boundary because I want her to like me. Okay. Well, why let's work on that. You know, um, some like actual tools that I did is I started doing, um, meditation and there's, uh, so many different kinds of meditation. I know that that's another one that's really overwhelming to people. There's really fun ones that you can do. There's a, I, I did something called clairvoyant meditation. I know the word clairvoyant sounds like I've got a crystal ball and things are very metaphysical, but you know, it, it was very much just like, there's no chanting or anything like that. We closed our eyes and just did like, you know, essentially like body scans and visualizing our space and, you know, doing more like um, uh, an active meditation. Stuff like yeah. that really helped me mm -hmm. feel grounded and back to myself again and not so insecure and I had to be perfect and have all the answers. That actually, I think, was an, an emotional freedom technique. I remember driving. I remember driving in my car to work downtown, and I'd be like in my car, and I'd be like, "It's gonna be an amazing <laughs> day. It's gonna be great. Everything's perfect," you know, and like just like crying, doing the tapping, and listening to to motivational, you know, stuff in the car. And it was just again, it was day by day. It wasn't like something sure. like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna get over this tomorrow." I just gave myself the time 
to, to actually like process it. I didn't talk to my mom for three years. Like it was like, I had to do it alone and, um, and nobody else could help me through it, but myself. So. Wow. It's so powerful to think. I mean, I, I don't have a kid, so I don't know that emotion, but even with the business, like it uncovers parts of you that you didn't even know you had. So I can imagine having a kid that takes it to a whole other level and you giving those examples of the stuff that you needed to personally work on is just so interesting. And I'm sure a roller coaster of a ride, but for all the best reasons. So that's so beautiful. It made me, I mean, not that it all comes back to business, but it made me way more empathetic. It made me such a better listener. It made me such a better business owner. Again, nothing happens to you. It happens for you. And that definitely happened for me. Oh my gosh. I love it. No, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I'm curious, how has your definition of success changed over the years from pre-kitch to now in the position that you are today? That's such a great question. I, I've always felt successful. I, even when I was like in middle school and signing yearbooks, like I always felt, I remember being like, keep my, I was like so egotistical, keep my signature. It'll be worth something. something. I love it. Like, I, I mean, like literally like probably like a C average student, like there was no promise on, you know, in middle school, but, but, you know, I just always just deep down inside, I always felt felt like success. And I don't ever, I didn't ever even, I didn't, I didn't know how to articulate that, but, um, but I just felt it. And so, you know, when I was making that hair tie and I would get that small hair salon or a boutique, that was this, that's the same level of success that I feel today. I don't know how I would define it. It was, it's, it's a feeling. It's not a physical it's not something that is uh, manifested physically for me. It's just, I mean, I, I have this quote that I, I even put in our packaging and our boxes. And it's like the secret to having it all is knowing you already do. And I think deep down inside, even in middle school, I knew, I knew I, I knew I had it all in, even in that very moment, just because I could think a certain way. That's so powerful. And I'm curious, I feel like a lot of people before they start a business are like, you know what? I can't wait till we make a million. And then that number keeps changing. And I'm curious as someone who clearly has a very significantly, you know, you have quite a large business. Have you ever had those milestones for yourself? And how do you think about like revenue numbers now? I go, I flip flop a lot for this because sometimes, sometimes I'll tell myself the story that it's important. And then other times I tell myself, well, I get to do what I love every day. And that's the yeah. most important thing. Um, so of course there, we, you know, in the last like five years, we started making projections and starting like, you know, to put numbers down to try and like, um, because being a founder and just trying to pay your bills is one stage being an entrepreneur and scaling it and, you know, putting a great foundation there is another stage but now I'm in this CEO stage, which for a long time, I couldn't even say my title was CEO. Like, I was just like, that's weird. I don't know if that really suits me, but it is a different, completely different job in a sense where you have to be the guiding light for your team. I have the best team and I need to make sure that like they know where we're going. Um, and, you know, dollars helps 
with telling them where we want to go. And, yeah. um, but I, I don't actually put that on my strategic goals for the year. I put more emotional strategic goals, but, um, but we do do that because, you know, we need to manage our books. When you get to a sure. certain stage, you yeah. have to make sure you have healthy cash flow. I love that you include the emotion because what I'm realizing quick, like I had all these metrics. Okay. When we make it here, when we make it there and quickly, I realized like, that's just a moving target. And really it's about, do I feel fulfilled every day? Like, do I feel like I'm making an impact? So I'm just sharing that because some people think once you hit a number, and of course that's important because once you get bigger, you can hire people, you can make more of an impact. So that's important. But as a founder, it was just so interesting how quickly the importance of hitting numbers became kind of like second tier. Um, Even though of course it's important, but like what fuels me, I'm just thinking a lot about like, what motivates me every day? And I heard you in another interview say like, and this might, this might've been old Cassandra. So please correct me. But you were like, I, I really love like slower mornings. Um, I, I don't know if that is still accurate, but I just felt very much seen because I'm in this phase of my life now where I'm just reflecting of like, am I living intentionally? Am I happy? Cause that's the most important thing I think for a small business and like where I'm at, like if I'm not mentally good, it's not going to be good for anyone. So how can I stay like inspired? So I love that you were like, what do slow mornings look like? And that for me is like such a luxury and like huge. Like I used to wake up at six and I'm still on my phone, you know, like you're still always connected, but the fact that like, I don't do early meetings and I get to choose that. And I know that's a luxury is huge, but like you having slow mornings, is that kind of what your days look like? Or, you know, what does that bring up for you? Cause I know that interview was many years ago that I listened to. (laughs) Well, I love that you brought this up because, um, I constantly do future journaling on what I think I want my schedule to look like. Oh, I love, so this would be a future journal. Oh, I love my schedule. I start at 10 o'clock and I start emailing. This is not my schedule yet, but that's my future journal. But totally. But for me right now, I'm, I, I realized for me, I love being doing something for me first thing in the morning. I have to fill my own cup. So around, and I, I sound a little nutty, um, maybe to some, I don't know why I'm self-deprecating, but at around like 4.45, um, I have a eight sleep in my bed and it heats up a little bit. So it wakes me up and, um, in a very gentle way. And so at that time I do a morning meditation while I'm laying in bed and that's the visualization meditations that I, um, I really love. And it's about 30 minutes. And then at five 15, I'm out of bed and I go to the gym and then I get back around a seven o'clock. And that's usually when my daughter wakes up and I love being slow with her. I don't, we homeschoolers, so, um, you know, we get to have the benefit of, you know, not having to rush out the door and pack a lunch. And I feel really grateful for that, but I usually sit with her and, um, we, if we have time, we read, I always start the day with like a really big hug, a big, like super like tight hug. Um, and, uh, you know, give her a lot of undivided attention because I think, um, just one of my favorite things to do is just be like, I'm so happy to see you this morning. And, you know, like letting her know, like every day, it's just like one of the, 
um, you know, most important things is being able to like see her in the morning. So just little things like that, that I try and, um, and I try and implement, and then I'm out the door to work by eight o'clock and, and, um, and I get to, and this is like my all-time favorite. So my husband, uh, Jeremy, who you've met, he's my business partner, does all the operations for Kitsch. I didn't talk about him at all on this podcast, but I definitely want to yes. like, like so much love. Like he's a genius. He's a genius at what he does here and an integral part of the Kitsch's, Kitsch's growth. He and I, we get to go on a date every day. We walk to work hand in hand, that. go to coffee. And, and that's part of our morning and setting that tone for the day. So I fill my own cup. I fill yeah. my daughter's cup. And then I fill my relationship cup. And then I go to work. Oh, I love it. And it goes back to like the micro intention. So, you know, what in the morning satisfies you? It could be different for everyone, you know? And I love like, it could be just taking a walk down the street. It could be doing a meditation, but like, what are small things that are going to move the needle for you and like fill your own cup? And I love that you and your husband get to like walk to work and you do that. Like that's such a perk. Anytime that I could meet a friend in the morning or go on a walk with my husband, it's like fun. I'm like, oh, we're like doing something. It's like so fun. We're alive. Yeah. Yeah. Real <laughs> life. I literally yeah. say, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like a human being. Like I literally say that. I'm like, oh, we're like living a normal life of like walking outside. Cause I, you know, I'm so used to just like getting into work because it's such a passion, but these little moments for yourself is just so, so powerful. So I appreciate you sharing that. And yeah, I did not know that you wake up at 4.45. Do you go to sleep early? I mean, I see you text messaging, not so early. I mean, a little late, like what's your sleep regimen? Yeah, I'm usually in bed by nine. Um, and I do my I do. I love this app called wise guide. I've been doing it since like I was 18 years old and it's like a sleep hypnosis. Um, and I fall asleep to that. So once I've like set the tone, like I'm in bed, it's toasty. I usually fall yeah. asleep within like 10 minutes. So when I'm done, I'm like done. And then I, and then I wake up around like 445. So I mean, I think I get it. I think I get enough sleep. Yeah. No, if you sleep by nine, 10, that's amazing. Like I'll get into bed at nine and then kind of mess around to like 10. But my husband's always like, if you just slept at nine, you would wake up feeling vibrant and it, cause I need a lot of sleep to function Unfor you know, it's important, I guess, for my, just who I am. But, um, but yeah, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the wise guide app, huge fan. I've been listening to it after you told me when I sleep and even the affirmations, like you mentioned, like when you're doing email. So I, Love it. Highly, highly recommend it. And Cassandra, I want to close on one last question because I feel like I could probably talk to you for hours. What do you think is the messy truth about starting a business that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about? I'm going to start by saying, I don't think that this is the only messy truth. <laughs> I think there's a lot of messy truths. Um, no matter how hard you plan or try and figure things out, it is going to go not how you planned. And you really need to be okay with that. And you can't control it. You have to be open-minded to things happening in ways that you never thought possible. And think of it like wonderful thank you rather than, nah, I'm okay. And for me, at least, I, I think that that was one of the messy truths is, is like, 
it's just not, it's not going to happen how you're, you're thinking, but please be open-minded to how we can make that happen for you. You're saying you want to be happy. You know, you're saying you want to have profit margins. You're saying you want to do it this way. Okay. That's what you, the, you're telling me. You're also saying you want to work with this retailer, but this retailer is not going to do any of that for you. So we're not going to give you that retailer. Okay. We're going to give you this retailer instead. And they're going to be everything you asked for. Maybe not what you were planning, but they're going to be everything you asked for. So just say yes, okay? And so I think that's kind of the messy truth is like, just be open-minded to it being very different than what you expected. That is powerful. Like seriously, Cassandra, I know there's a lot of messy truths, but it's so true. I feel like in business, things are always going in a different direction. Like I've only been doing it for two and a half years, almost three. And I'm like, oh, everything, it always has like a quick left turn. Mm -hmm. And every time I'm like, oh gosh, like this happened. My husband will remind me like, this is business. Like if it was easy, everyone would do it. And it's just a good like reframe for me. And hearing you say that, like, it's just nice because you can have really difficult moments, but if you know that that's just part of it, you're like, all right, I got this, you know? And this is just how it is. So you mentioning like being flexible with that and people can start working on that trait even now before starting a business like that is such an important quality so wow that was major gems Cassandra you are amazing like thank you so much for joining us you're such a bright light and I know this uh, interview is just going to inspire so many people so thank you for being with us I really really appreciate it. this was I thought it was going to be so overwhelming and I was very nervous about it um, but you made it so effortless. And Yasmin, I want to say, and I'm sure many, many people have told you this, but your ability to really hear people and put this space out there for everybody, the, even though we all like have product businesses and we are, you know, behind the scenes doing it, the inspiration that you are providing for so many women around the world and holding space for all of us to tell our stories. I, it is really one of the greatest gifts that you can give everybody. So um, I thank you so much for doing what you do. We all really appreciate it. <laughs> You're making make me cry. Thank you. Uh, oh my gosh. Um, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. And um, you know, and it's, it, I think sometimes we just forget we forget the impact that we're making, especially when you do it because it's a passion and you aren't getting a paycheck, you know, to do it. So um, just know that it's uh, it's really amazing what you do. Oh my God. I, I'm going to take that clip and just remind myself every day in the background <laughs> about what you're saying, but it truly means the world. So thank you for sharing that. I'm going to take that in. Thank you. It means so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.